When we think about people in the about individuals in scripture who suffer, Jesus would probably likely top the list. From the Garden of Gethsemane, where an agitated Jesus tells his disciples, I am deeply grieved, even to death. And then we get the haunting words from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus does suffer intensely and at many levels, physically, emotionally, even existentially. With a broken body and a deep sense of abandonment, Jesus embodies what suffering is. And and then after Jesus, we had a whole series on Job, the logical man, the logical choice for us, who became known as the patient sufferer. And there's David, the psalmist, who eloquently expresses so many shades and textures of suffering and the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. And then there's Elijah, who under the broom tree utters, It is enough now, Lord. Oh, take my, away my life. But even as we look at Scripture, as we compile our list ourselves, the gr- list can grow, but biblical women generally do not make the cut. Maybe with the possibility exception of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Part of the problem has to do with the fact that there just aren't as many women in the Bible to begin with. And those that do have roles aren't generally associated with complex, multi-layered suffering of their male counterparts. Instead, the suffering of women is confined almost exclusively to their reproductive capacities and the anxieties that rise from the state of affairs. For the most part, this type of suffering is fairly easily resolved in the biblical text. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah all eventually give birth to baby boys when God decides to open their wombs. The reality is, however, that while infertility is unquestionably a significant issue for women then and now, it has never been the only source of suffering for women. And having babies surely does not solve all the problems that women face. Trust me, on Sunday morning, I deal with quite a few more than just that. Turning to our passage in 1 Samuel the opening verses of first chapter inform us that Elkanah is a distinguished family line. He's a man of some means because he has two wives. We know nothing about these wives, however, except their names and, and their reproductive statuses. Peninnah has children. Hannah does not. From this brief sketch, we can get a number of things. First, Since barrenness, and it was always assumed that this problem lied with the woman, was considered a source of disgrace in the ancient world, Hannah lived under a cloud of shame. Those around her probably wondered what she had done to deserve such a punishment. This seems to be the case with her co-wife, Benina. Who enjoyed, make her, who enjoyed to make her miserable and would taunt her that the Lord had closed her womb. 
The second thing we get is that children, particularly sons, were not just tiny humans to love and nurture. They represented the future, life beyond the present generation in a very real and concrete way. Sometimes we forget that for the ancient Israelites, the concept of life after death and heaven was perhaps non-existent. Thus, during the time in which the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible was written, Israelites imagined life after death as unfolding in the lives of their descendants, their children, and their grandchildren. With this in mind, Elkanah's future was assured through Peninnah's sons. Hannah's was not. And this thought, finally, even through the text, tells us that Hannah was Elkanah's favorite That he could not give her this double portion of the sacrifice at Shiloh. Hannah's immediate future wasn't wasn't secure either. If Elkanah died suddenly, his sons through Peninnah would have inherited everything. Leaving Hannah dependent upon their goodwill or lack of it. She knew. That without a child, and more specifically a son, that she would end up on the street. Hannah was not dependent only upon Elkanah's kindness and generosity, but she was dependent upon his life as well. As year after year passed, and Hannah would weep and refuse to eat during the family pilgrimage to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, we see Hannah's ongoing suffering. Given the enormity of Hannah's predicament, this should come as no surprise to us either. To add insult to injury, Hannah's husband doesn't get it either. Hannah, why are you crying? And why aren't you eating? Why are you so sad? He would ask. While he might have been a nice guy who truly loved Hannah, he simply wasn't paying attention to the reality of her life. His love couldn't remove her shame or her vulnerability. His obliviousness is clear when he asks, Am I not more to you than ten sons? This statement says much more about him than it does Hannah. I think I would have been more reassured if he had said, Hannah, you are more to me than ten sons. But that's not how he phrases it, is it? Hannah finally reaches her breaking point. And she decides to go to the sanctuary at Shiloh on her own to plead with God for a male child. She's even further humiliated when in the sanctuary. She reaches out for help, is crying out for help. The priest Eli, however, assumes the worst And compounds her grief by saying, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Sober up! But once she explains herself, Eli listens and tells her to go in peace. He even sends her away with a blessing. One of the words that, that, one of the sentences that we don't really focus on too much in this story is after that prayer... Her countenance was no longer sad. She was not with child at that moment. Eli did not speak child into her or ask for God's blessing in that way. 
This happens in the next verse. But in that moment, she's lifted up. This is a difficult passage for me. Hannah and I share similar experiences. Wife, mother, desiring to faithfully follow God and dealing with the troubles of having a child. I know you look and you say, but you have two. How is this possible? For five years, it was not. Jonathan and I both struggled with with the thought of infertility. and And I cannot, I wish I could tell you that Hannah's prayer was not my prayer. That crying out in extreme anguish and grief. One Christmas, after realizing that all the medicine had failed, I had two cousins that, oh, guess what? We're expecting children and chasing me around with a cup of water to drink after them. Like there's something magical in the water. Dealing with that hurt and pain was intense. But I think we all know that that's not the most suffering that we deal with. We can look at Hannah's life and at first glance we can see that, that God seems as cruel as Peninnah. Peninnah is obviously cruel with her taunts. I have boys, you don't. Yet in this image, we we can kind of see that that God seems almost equally cruel to shut Hannah's womb. Is God the cause of, of a barren womb? If we say yes, then it's easy to jump and say that God is the cause of of every barren and hopeless situation, of every disease and every disaster. We can even put to words that if we say yes to this, that God was responsible for what takes place in Paris. I do not believe this. We do not believe this. I believe that we do live in a broken world with several causes of trouble. Some are tied to God's gift of a free will. The consequence of our own choices and or the consequence of other people's choices. Some situations are the work of the evil one and some are from a general state of brokenness found in living between Eden and heaven. It's consistent with God's character to bring birth out of barrenness, hope out of hopelessness. But I find trouble with the idea of God causing the barrenness to begin with. Was the closing of her womb just a a special case because God had a special plan? Was it merely just a misunderstanding of God's timing? Did Hannah have to pray in order to nudge God's memory and resulting action? This leads to some more difficult questions. Why does God answer Hannah's prayer with a child? While so many other prayers for children receive an answer of no. Or when so many other prayers not related to childbirth alone receive no. Is it because she's more faithful We see her fervent prayers. 
Some of the, the scripture we read, the different versions says that, that her heart was speaking, yet no words came out of her mouth. She goes to the sanctuary and she cries out to God, is this her faithfulness on display for us? She doesn't doubt. We see this in her attitude change after her encounter with Eli. Her countenance is no longer sad. She is trusting in God. May it be as you have said. The blessing you give, Eli. Is it because of the bargain she makes with God to give the child over to God's service as a Nazarite? That no razor will touch his head. That he will not eat of grapes or drink of the drink. In fact, the bargain might not have even been a bargain at all, but just an illustration of Hannah's faithfulness, since all firstborn are to be the Lord's. God does not request anything of her, yet Hannah makes the vow and sees it through. She brings her precious toddler to Eli in later chapters. Eli is a man who failed miserably in raising his own children. I know God is not a, a genie awaiting magic words from us. You just didn't pray the right way. Nor is God's favor to be bought with promises or acts of great sacrifice. Don't act like you've never said, God, if you get me through this, I will do this. This was my life in seminary. Lord, if you just let me pass with a C, I promise I'll be a better preacher than this class. Yet I'm left with many questions. Questions from all of this. I think we all approach life and and our struggles, our ups and downs, and we realize that that while this story of Scripture, of of Hannah and Elkanah and and Peninnah, is not just about childbearing, it's not about having the blessing of a son to, to enable you to have life after this. But this is an example for us to look to the Word of God and see a woman who is strong, How easy would it have been to give up? Year after year, it says. It wasn't just a one-time deal. Year after year, where they would go to Shiloh, she would fast. She was at a spirit of prayer from the very beginning. She went on her own, which is almost unheard of, and her heart crying out to God. The story we hear from Hannah is not just her story, but it's how to deal with our troubling times. How to deal with these struggles we face. For many, it is childbearing. For others, it's cancer. For others, it's a loss of a job. Loss of a loved one. When we handle this, when we seek after God, when we cry from our heart, God is big enough to hear all that we have to say. The ups and downs of life. In fact, maybe even more in this, we hear of how to approach the throne of God. We can do it with a boldness within our heart. 
to seek after him in our words and our life. Maybe seeking out the blessing of others. I don't think that Hannah went to Shiloh in that sanctuary that day to see Eli. Eli saw her. May we take our petitions, our wants, our needs, our desires, our sufferings to God. And let God hear the cry of our heart. And that's when we can hear and experience a peace. What if our scripture this day had just ended right there? That we didn't know that Samuel comes. I mean, yes, we're reading for 1 Samuel. It's kind of obvious. Samuel is going to arrive on the scene. But what if we had stopped at that moment with Hannah no longer being sad? To me, that's answer to prayer. When we suffer, when we want, if we want that peace, the peace is more so than than what comes next. Because what comes next is how we pick up and live life. I said that Jonathan and I tried for close to three years for children. We were told very clearly from doctors that we had a about a 15% chance of conceiving on our own. And he said, and I'm just throwing out a number to make you happy. That statement alone did not make me happy. We had just finished our last treatment. It didn't work. And so we were beginning the process of adopting. I firmly believe that there are children in this world today that need homes. And I see the benefit of people opening their homes and taking children in. So we were proceeding with that next step, which is a very big endeavor as well. We had filed paperwork. We had our lawyer. We were preparing for what's called a home study. And in a home study, they don't really come and study your home. They kind of glance over, but they really look at everything. Financials, your work, your your day-to-day life. There's a pack of paper about this big that you fill out. And we had done and notarized and triplicate and were ready to go for the home study. And I was at peace. I was no longer sad. I had a sense of excitement about what was to come next. We were keeping all of this very quiet because with adoption, you really never know what's next. And I was sick. (laughs) Sick to my stomach at all hours of the day. And I remember going and taking a test. (laughs) In the midst of my triplicate stacks of home study paperwork, And realizing that I'm pregnant with my precious child. A blessing that I will never be able to duplicate. And the blessing that she is to me and to this place and to her daddy. Yeah, I'm talking about you. But it wasn't just this situation. Take away the child rearing. And I go to the time when Jonathan was struggling with life and a peace that comes over me. When my dad was diagnosed with cancer and and the peace that comes over me with his healing. 
when my grandfather passed away. The day after my wedding. And a peace that is just flooding me that I'm no longer sad. You see, I think if we end right there with that peace, we can approach whatever happens next in life. We can approach the what comes or what doesn't come because we know that our hearts are crying out to God and God hears our prayers. Pray to God. Approach Him in the sanctuary, the chapel, before your bed at night. Cry out to him in the despair, in the joy, in the celebration of what he gives you and what he doesn't. But be open to experience the precious peace of not being sad. Sadness is no more. And when we experience that, then we can pick up the next day And live a life worthy that God has called us to. To serve him. And to point others towards him. Hannah did just that. And she does that with her life and through her son Samuel. Will you be faithful? Will you be bold in the ups and downs? And will you pray to God? Let us go together in prayer. God, in this place, we thank you. We thank you for what you have given to us. We thank you that Hannah's song can can penetrate beyond the surface and it can go to the depths of who we are when we cry out, not just for children, but when we cry out for our needs, our hurts, We know you listen. We know you hear our words. You hear the cry of our heart. God, give us that peace. Give us that that phrase where our countenance is no longer sad. And we're able to arise and worship you. Take our life, Lord, and show us how to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.